0: That chat is brought to you by Walters this Friday night. Walters will be showing not only the Nationals and the NBA playoffs, but also rough and rowdy 17. This is a barstool sports event. will feature over 20 fights. Should be a lot of fun. As always, head over to waltersdc.com slash events for more information on all of the pay-per-view events that Walters is hosting.
1: Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash blue wire terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed.
2: And now the pitch swing and a fly ball. Shallow, right. Soto makes the catch runner tags. Here comes the throw. It will not be in time. And the Marlins score the run. That's a good appeal that he left early. And it's out! They call out on the throw to third. He left early. The ruling in New York is that he did not leave early. So take away the double play and the curly W in the books on the appeal. It's a sacrifice fly. Swinging a ground ball past the third
3: baseman, Anderson. This one down the line, headed to the corner. Scoring the go ahead run is Strange Gordon. And on his way to second is K. Barrett Ruiz with a double. Arano has the sign. Two balls and a strike. Now the kick and the pitch. Slider chopped over the mound. Charging in Escobar. He gloves and he throws. Bell to stretch. It's in time for the out. And the ball game is over. The Nationals hold on. They win the game for a second time. And this time it will
0: count. The Nationals 5 and the Marlins 4. An extra inning win. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, May 19th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So Thursday is the Nats' last scheduled off day until June 6th, if you could believe that. Uh, You could say that the Nats have earned this off day with what they did on Wednesday night, a 5-4-10 inning win at the Miami Marlins to avoid a three-game sweep. Now, the Nats did blow this game in the bottom of the ninth, but The Nats then answered right back in the top of the 10th. The game took three hours, 56 minutes. So for all of us who watched this game, nearly four hours of Nats-Marlins on a Wednesday night, I feel like we all earned this victory as much as the boys did on Wednesday night. But the boys battled and the boys did win. Uh, This was a strange game. This was a long night, but this was a victorious night. The Nats get themselves a win for just the seventh time In 26 games, Mark, it is not often lately that we've been able to say this, but the Nats won, and we are here to talk about a Nats victory.
4: Now, here's my question for you, Al. Was this a good win, or was this just a needed win? I'll get your take, and then I'll tell you how I I feel about
0: it. Well, actually, there were a few things that were quite good about this win, but if you're trying to judge the overall performance, ain't nobody feeling great (laughs) about this win on Wednesday night, but it was a win. It does count as a win and not a loss.
4: Okay, I'm with you on that. Yes, some very good individual performances led by Josiah Gray and Caber Ruiz, first and foremost. So yes, I would not necessarily call it a good win. And what I will tell you is that watching it, I had a moment in the top of the eighth that I thought to myself— They're going to lose this game. And that's when they got the one run to take the lead on the bases loaded hit by pitch and then couldn't get anyone else in. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the sign of a team that's not going to win a game. When you don't take advantage of that opportunity, you very often are pointing back to that as the reason that you lost a game. There really were a bunch of them, even in the first inning, that I mean, they were (laughs) four for 19 with runners in scoring position in the game. They had 19 at bats with runners in scoring position. They only had four hits. Most of their runs came not on a hit. You had a wild pitch in the 1st. You did have the back-to-back doubles in the 2nd. You have the hit by pitch in the 8th and then you did have the big double by Ruiz in the 10th. But there were so many opportunities there for them to actually score a good number of runs and make this much easier on their bullpen and they just kept refusing to do that. And so I felt like this was one look they needed the win, of course. Counts as much as any other one. But Boy, I did not. There were so many times in that game that fundamentally they just did not do the right things you need to do to win a baseball game.
0: Yeah, this was a one-run, 10-inning win for the Nats, despite them going 4-for-19 with runners in scoring position. The Marlins went 0-for-9. I mean, think about that. You had 19 at-bats with runners in scoring position. Like you said, the opposing team goes 0-for-9 in the RISP situations, and you only end up winning by the one run. Before we get to the heroes, what a unique and uh, not so good Bottom of the ninth inning for the Nats. Uh, A crazy bottom of the ninth inning. A blown save for Tanner Rainey. He blows his second consecutive save opportunity. uh, And he suffers the blown save on a play that initially was thought to have ended the game. So Rainey, in the bottom of the ninth, allowed a run to tie the game at four. He gave up a leadoff infield single to Jesus Sanchez. Then issued a one-out six-pitch walk of Miguel Rojas, who Rainey had down at 1.02. Then issued a one-out five-pitch walk of Eric Gonzalez to load the bases. And then came the wacko play. Uh, Rainey gave up a one-out RBI sack fly to Jazz Chisholm Jr., who killed the Nets in this game, to tie the game at four. Now, the play initially was ruled as a game-ending double play because the umpires ruled that Jesus Sanchez had left third base too early. And if you're watching this game on television, as most of us were, This seemed like a miracle that the Nats had turned what seemed like a dire situation into an end of the game play. It was actually like one of the more exciting things I've seen in a Nats game this season.
3: They threw for the appeal and now this game will go to replay. Here we go. The call on the field is overturned. The run scores.
0: Then we had a lengthy replay review. I mentioned the game taking nearly four hours. This replay review nearly took four hours, but you want to get it right. And I think ultimately the uh, officials got this thing right. It was determined that Sanchez did not leave third base too early. The game was tied at four, and on to extra innings we went. But what a strange sequence there in that bottom of the ninth inning. I don't know about you. I thought that the, uh, the officials got it right that Sanchez did not leave early. But what did you think?
4: First of all, I don't think I have ever seen a game end on an appeal play. I don't remember. I mean, you, know, you see it happen every now and again. But I don't think I can ever remember a game ending like that where they literally take a run off the board that should have been the game tying run. And instead, it's going to win the team the game on a, the most bizarre double play you would ever see. Now, watching it all live, you could see that Michael Franco at third base immediately was calling for the ball. So he had reason to think that the runner left too soon. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, if Chris Guccione, the umpire, they don't make that call unless it's obvious. You know, that's not one you take a, a you know, yeah, 50-50, I'm not entirely sure. Like You only call that if you're 100% sure if you're the umpire. So I'm thinking before we see the replays, well, they must have. It must have been obvious. And then you start watching the replay and you're like, man, that is bang, bang. Like how could you say one way or the other? Now that's based on the synced up replay that we're seeing. And I do always wonder, and I don't know enough about the technology behind this, is it perfectly synced up those two things when they put those picture in picture? I also know that in New York, they have their own ability to do that kind of thing. So they're not relying on the mass and feed or the Bally Sports Florida feed in terms of timing that out. Like they have the ability on their own to time it out so based on what we saw it did look like it was basically si- simultaneous when he left bag maybe he left early maybe he didn't so but what i was surprised at is that they overturned it based on that because what we saw looked like it could go either way and if that's the case don't you stick with the original call now ultimately i think it would have been really tough to end a game on a call like that that wasn't obvious and it didn't appear to be obvious but if the whole point of replay is you only overturn it if you have clear and you know conclusive evidence, based on what we saw on TV, I didn't see clear and conclusive evidence that the initial call was wrong.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it was clear and conclusive. Just watching it, it didn't look to me like he left early. I don't know. I
4: don't think so either, but I can't say definitively that he didn't. It looked like it was bang, bang, right on the money.
0: Yeah, I think they just got the initial call wrong. I, I don't know what they saw. I mean, I guess maybe it was closer than normal. I mean, look, shame on Sanchez for making it close like that. He should have done a better job of departing. You know, you got to make sure on something like that, right? Because the play wasn't close at home. And so, you know, he could have waited an extra split second to make sure that he didn't leave too early. But I don't know, just watching it, and even uh, Bob and Kevin on Masson sort of concurred with this like, no, he didn't leave early. So, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I guess in the moment, because it was closer than normal, you maybe thought that he left early. I I thought they ultimately got it right. And I did think that they got it right with that review. But to your point, was it clear and conclusive? No, a play like that usually isn't.
4: Right. And so I agree. I mean, in the end, I think it's the right call, because if you're going to call a guy out for that, it better be totally obvious. And we didn't see anything ourselves that made it totally obvious. The other part of it, like you're saying, is That was, Soto never had a chance to throw him out of the plate. Like that was a deep fly ball. I think it almost went to the warning track. And so I actually was watching it saying, Soto, what are you doing throwing it to the plate? You're just letting the trailing runner, the winning runner, take third, except the trailing runner didn't even do that. That was De La Cruz, who was pinch running for Rojas, didn't even tag up from second to third. That could have cost the Marlins the way this thing was going. There was so much sloppy baseball going on in the finalings of this game. You know, in the end, that didn't cost either team the game. It was one fair and square, but just really some questionable decisions all around and not smart, fundamental baseball from a lot of guys on both sides.
0: No, and kind of lost in this is Tanner Rainey blows a second straight save opportunity. Did not look good in this inning, issuing two walks like that. I mean, you know, we keep saying, get the guy more work. Well, he, he keeps pitching like this. He ain't going to be getting the more work, although... I do wonder if maybe he needs more work to stay sharp. But anyway, disappointing outing from Rainey on a night, by the way, on which the Nats bullpen was quite good. Carl Edwards Jr., Kyle Finnegan, and then Victor Arano, son of Davey, in the uh, bottom of the 10th inning, get the job done. Those guys did a really nice job.
2: Home after that series to begin a homestand with the Dodgers and then the Rockies. Pitch of the way, swung on, line down the right field line, toward the corner. It's a fair ball and one up off the wall. Ruiz around
0: first on his way to second. Garcia with the throw. It's not in time and k Ruiz is in with a leadoff double. In terms of the hero for the Nats on Wednesday night, that hero was K. Ruiz. And it was a cool thing to have K. Ruiz and Josiah Gray, both for the most part doing well. With Josiah, it's a bit of a complicated story here. But, you know, the top two prospects who the Nats acquired from the Dodgers last summer for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner and both Ruiz and Gray to varying degrees delivering on Wednesday night. K. Ruiz was a force in this game. He got on base five times in the game, three for three with an RBI double, another double, a single, and two walks. And the biggest hit was that RBI double, Ruiz and that Nats. One run, 10th inning, a one-out RBI double, down the left field line to put the Nats up 5-4. But he also on Wednesday night in the Nats two-run second had a leadoff first pitch double to right field. He in the top of the third drew a two-out seven pitch walk. He in the top of the sixth had a leadoff opposite field single to left field. He in the Nats one-run eighth drew a five-pitch walk. You know, we haven't talked much about Burt Ruiz lately. He's just kind of there. He hasn't been struggling mightily, but he also hasn't been doing great. It was interesting. In this series, he caught all of the games in the series. Feels like it's the first time we've seen that in a while because we've seen Riley Adams playing a bit more, being the uh, personal catcher for Patrick Corbin. But, you know, a night like Wednesday night, I mean, this is what you're hoping for from Caber Ruiz. He was tremendous. He came through offensively. You know, the bat-to-ball skills were on clear display, and he obviously delivered with the biggest hit of the game for the Nets.
4: It's hard not to be impressed with what Cabert Ruiz did in this game at the plate and behind the plate, blocking balls all over the place. Really, at times, kind of helped save the game from a defensive standpoint. But I was just thinking to myself, how often do you see a catcher reach base five times in a game? Well, he's actually not the first Uh, national to do it. Jan Gomes did it last year. I forgot about this game in a 17-2 blowout. The Dimex actually had five hits. Jesus Flores had a five-hit game. Then also Matt Wieters, Pedro Severino, and Wilson Ramos all reached base five times in a game. But it's a rare thing in general to have a catcher who can do that. And what I like, I know we talked the other day about how they haven't really had like those young players stepping up, those things that make you get excited about where this team might be going in the long run. This was a good sign of that. This is the guy you want to see doing these kinds of things, and we are seeing more of it from him. Maybe it's not consistently night in and night out, but we are seeing more of that from him. You can tell there is something special there. It's a matter of him putting it all together to become a complete, everyday, big-time catcher, but both at the plate and behind the plate, he has the ability to to be a difference maker there. And that's not something these guys have had much of over the years, certainly not in terms of young catchers. So I was really impressed with it, the composure, hitting the ball to all fields, drawing his walks in in sometimes in situations where he might have been tempted to try for the big hit. And again, I can't talk enough about blocking balls in the dirt because there were a million of them in this game in big spots late and he kept coming through there. So maybe his best game of the year when you, you take everything into consideration.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, especially considering he came through in the clutches he did in that top of the 10th inning. He does have a three forty-four on base percentage for the season now. I mean, that's quite good. His batting average is .282. He hasn't hit for much power, only has one homer. He's only slugging .382, but there is a dearth of power hitting across Major League Baseball this season. So, you know, the numbers are all kind of skewed right now. A catcher giving you a three forty four on base percentage, that's good. I mean, you take that. And obviously, getting on base five times on Wednesday night. Only helps your on-base percentage. You know, this was a strange game for the Nats. Not just with what happened in the bottom of the ninth inning, but how about this? The Nats win on Wednesday night despite their numbers two through four batters. Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Nelson Cruz going a combined 0 for 11. Uh, Now, Soto did work three walks. Cruz worked a walk, but Nelson went hitless again. He went 0 for 4 with a walk and two strikeouts. Bell went 0 for 5. You know, I don't want to harp on this too much because he's been so good. He has cooled off here lately, Josh Bell. He's not been as good lately as he had been earlier. That was bound to happen. I understand that. But Bell uh, on Wednesday night went over for 5. But Ruiz was quite good. Cesar Hernandez is looking a lot better at the plate here lately. Cesar on Wednesday night, 2 for 5 with a triple and an RBI double. How about Hernandez and Jazz Chisholm Jr., the Marlins leadoff batter, Each guy beginning a half of the first inning with a triple on Wednesday night. How often does that happen? Uh, But Hernandez, here's the other thing, too, with that triple. So Nats score one run in the first. Another game in which the Nats score in the first inning. They have done that well this year. They score early in games. But Cesar on that one run first, a full count leadoff triple to right field to conclude a nine-pitch plate appearance against the Marlins starter Pablo Lopez. The Nats got Lopez out of the game early, worked counts against him. Cesar did a really good job in that first inning. And then in the Nats' two-run second, had a two-out full-count RBI double off the right-field warning track to put the Nats up 3-1. Hernandez was down in that count at 1.02. So two different full-count extra base hits for Hernandez over the first two innings on Wednesday night.
4: So, you know, we've been talking about him previously about, well, Like he's getting hits, but he's not really acting like a leadoff hitter. He wasn't drawing his walks, not necessarily a guy who works the count. All of a sudden, we are seeing him actually look like a leadoff hitter. He was drawing his walks. And now, like you said, long at bats, nine pitch at bat to start the game, then the 3 2 count in the second. So something's happened there. Whatever it is, he's kind of embraced this and he is now getting on base, finding any way to do it, and just looking like a traditional leadoff hitter uh, as he does that. I thought that. Double in the second was especially important, the back-to-back doubles, because Alcides Escobar as well. They get the leadoff double from Ruiz, and then Franco and Thomas each make outs, and now you may strand the runner and not score him, and it may still be one nothing. And instead, you get back-to-back two-out RBI doubles. From Escobar and Hernandez. That was really important and ultimately helped drive Lopez out of the game as early as they did. So, those are probably the two biggest clutch hits of the game besides Ruiz in the 10th. And they needed it because they were squandering all those other opportunities. Because, like you said, two, three, four, not getting the job done. You saw double plays. Uh, you did see some walks, but you saw strikeouts again. Nelson Cruz, you know, he looked good there for a little bit and he's kind of fallen right back to where he was before. You also had, bizarrely in this game, how often do you see a team pinch run for its cleanup and number five hitters? So all of a sudden, Nelson Cruz and Yadiel Hernandez are out of the game late because they needed the runners in a close game late, worked out in the end. But if somehow this game keeps going, you're going to end up with those guys batting instead of others that actually did kind of come into play in the 10th inning rally with Victor Robles Bunting. Maybe we'll get to that here at some point. There was a lot going on (laughs) in this game, suffice to say. But I like what Cesar Hernandez is now doing out of the leadoff spot. I thought that's big. We're starting to see him look like a leadoff hitter.
0: Yeah, the Nats in that two-run second had three doubles. Uh, Cabe Ruiz had a leadoff double, and then Alcides Escobar and Cesar Hernandez, the back-to-back two out doubles. So good to see that. And that's hit for some extra base hits on Wednesday night. Uh, you mentioned Alcides' big RBI double. That was good. Uh, Michael Franco had a couple of singles in the game as well. By the way, with the Victor Roble sacrifice bunt, I'll say this, he's bunting well this year. I feel like he's put down a lot of good bunts, which, you know, <coughs> is that what he's here to do? No, but that is a skill. You do need that sometimes. And he's been able to bunt for some hits. And when called upon to sacrifice bunt, he's done a nice job with that so far this year.
4: Yeah, he has. And so that situation, generally speaking, in the top of the 10th as the visiting team with the automatic runner on second, I'm not a fan of playing for the one run there. However, given who the batter was, it's not Yadel Hernandez because Victor Robles pinch ran for him two innings earlier when they needed to score the go-ahead run. So in that situation, I do probably like their chances better of Victor getting a bunt down, getting the runner to third, than letting him swing away and hoping for the best there. So Generally speaking, I don't like the strategy, but with Victor, he's probably the one guy I'd say, yes, go ahead and do that there. And then props to Cabo Ruiz for driving him in. If you're Victor, you have to contribute any way that you can. That's Right now, that's what he's got to do because he's not going to be the electric all-around hitter that we always hoped he would be. He's going to have to win with fundamentals at the plate, on the bases, and in the field. And speaking of in the field, he almost blew it tonight in the bottom of the 10th inning on the fly ball to the warning track that he thought he could throw the runner out at third base and air mailed it and if not for victor Rano backing it up and being in the right spot to make that play that ball gets away it's a tie game again
3: here's the pitch slider hit in the air to center robles racing back on this one slowing up now squares up makes the catch edge of the warning track Bass is going to try for third. Robles' throw is
4: high, but backed up by Arano. He saves the day. Cannot make that throw. Zero reason. That one, the Soto throw, there's so many examples here of they're trying too hard to make things happen that are not there. Don't do it. You're going to end up costing your team.
0: No, they have not been very good at making throws from the outfield this season. There have been a number of instances uh, like the ones we've hit on already in this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It's graduation season, and so that means it is Window Nation's graduation sale. If your old windows are failing or just not making the grade, here's a homework assignment. Call Window Nation and get to the head of the class with 0% financing for five full years, 60 months, and Get two free windows with every two that you buy. Window Nation windows are the best. They are made right here locally in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. Over 1,500 custom window combinations are available. Vinyl, wood, fiberglass. Price quotes are valid for six months. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation Al Galdi sent you. You know, the longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you're wasting on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over 60 million dollars On energy bills, call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you ask Window Nation for the graduation sale that you heard about from Al Galdi. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and get the special offer. Mention my name, Al Galdi, when you talk to Window Nation.
1: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all
3: He winds kicks and pitches. Check swing, strike three on the curveball. And so Gray strikes out the side in the sixth inning and fans four batters in a row overall.
0: Seven strikeouts for Gray. Now to Josiah Gray. So Josiah on Wednesday night, you know, he wasn't great, but I thought he overall was pretty good. Three runs in six innings. I I know that's not like lights out. Uh, He did put some guys on. There's no doubt about that. He gave up six hits, a homer, a triple, four singles, issued a hit by pitch and a wild pitch. But how about this? Seven strikeouts versus no walks. You love that. I mean, the things that you as a pitcher can most control, strikeouts, walks, and he had seven Ks versus no walks. He also threw a lot of strikes in this game. 95 pitches, 65 strikes versus 30 balls. Uh, He, in the bottom of the first, gave up a run. He gave up a leadoff triple to Jazz Chisholm Jr. off the right field wall, despite Chisholm having been down at 1.02, and then Chisholm scored on an RBI sack fly, by Jesus Aguilar, Uh, Gray in the bottom of the third allowed a run. But this is what was interesting to me. That inning could have been so much worse than it ended up being. So I guess you say, shame on Josiah for struggling as he did to begin the inning. But man, did he escape that inning. So one run scores, despite Josiah having the bases loaded With nobody out in this inning, he gave up a first pitch leadoff single to Miguel Rojas, gave up an opposite field single to Eric Gonzalez on a 1-2 pitch, issued a wild pitch, issued a hit-by pitch of Jazz Chisholm Jr., who was down at 1.12. So you have bases loaded, nobody out, but only one run scores, and the one run scored on a one-out RBI sack fly by Garrett Cooper to cut the Nats' lead to 3-2. And then the other run off Gray came in the bottom of the fifth via a leadoff a full count homer by who else? Jazz Chisholm Jr. Uh, to right center field to tie the game at three. This was another count in which Chisholm was down and yet turned the plate appearance into a productive one. He was down 1-2 at one point. Uh, you know, he's not the biggest guy. That was some shot too, 412 feet per stat cast. So, you know, I don't want to go overboard on praising Josiah Gray. But again, I thought another one of these outings in which there is a lot to like and seven strikeouts versus no walks, that plays. I mean, if you do that on a regular basis, you're going to do a lot better than three runs in six innings per game moving forward.
4: Yeah. So the things to like here finished strong, four straight strikeouts to end his night, retired the last six batters, not going out on a down note, but going out on a high note. I thought that was important. Limiting the damage, like you just said, the two runs. The first two runs, and actually three of the Marlins four runs in this game came on sack flies. So we just said they were 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position. The only hit that scored a run was the Chisholm homer, and that's a solo homer to lead off an inning. So. What Josiah did well that he hasn't always done well is limit the damage, an inning that could have gone really south on him, and he ends up getting the outs. And yes, they maybe pushed a run across, but he didn't let anything else develop after that. So I thought that was really big for him. Uh, Like I said, finishing strong. You love the no walks, the seven strikeouts. So good stuff there. We're still kind of waiting for that, like, put it all together in one start and walk out there and say, man, what a great start that was. He's had moments. He's had some starts that looked like they were going to be that, or he's finished strong and it didn't start strong. But again, for a young guy without a whole lot of experience, we are seeing more good than bad from him. And I think that's important at this stage of his development. I think that's the biggest takeaway is there's more to like than not to like with Josiah
2: Gray.
0: Yeah, you haven't seen that like dominant start, that start that just like oozes excellence. You know, he's like a running back. He's giving you four plus yards per carry, which is nice, but you want to see him bust one for like 50 yards in a touchdown, that kind of a thing. He haven't done that yet. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, he's been their best starting pitcher this year. I know that's not saying a lot. I get that. But uh, like you said, we're seeing more good than bad. Eight starts now for Josiah Gray this season. ERA of 436. He has a strikeouts per nine innings of 955. He's averaging more than a strikeout per inning, which is beautiful. It's exactly what you want to see. So prior to this game on Wednesday, we had some news that I think is worth discussing. Uh, The Washington Post on Wednesday evening reported new details on the contracts of Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. And the new details are that each guy is in the final guaranteed year of his contract. Now, this is a little confusing because it feels like we just went through this with Mike and Davey. But here's the deal. So September 2020, the Nats announced multi-year contract extensions for both Mike and Davey. The understanding at the time was that each guy got a three-year extension. But what the post broke on Wednesday evening was that each extension, in fact, was a two-year extension with a club option for 2023. So in theory, and I stress that phrase in theory, this could be the final season for both Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez with the Nets. Now we'll see if that ends up happening. The two things that immediately come to mind is number one, you know, we've danced this dance with the learners many times over the years where they don't give general managers and managers lengthy contracts. We thought that that was kind of sort of changing with these extensions for Rizzo and Martinez. Uh, Apparently not as much as we thought. The other thing, and this is maybe the biggest thing, is with the ownership uncertainty, what does that mean? You know, if the learners end up selling the dance sooner rather than later and new ownership takes over with both Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez having a club option for the following season, 2023, well, boy, might that put the futures of Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez with the club up in the air. So a lot to be considering here, but what is your sort of general take on what came out here with Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez on Wednesday evening?
4: So my first thought was, man, didn't we just go through this? Like, we got to do this again. Like, I thought we finally were at a stage (laughs) in this organization's development where we just don't have to think about these things that much. And unfortunately, that's not true because uh, despite their success in winning a World Series, it turns out they didn't get quite as much job security as we thought. Now, you go back to those announcements at the time, they were very careful not to announce terms on them. And despite repeated questions from me and Jesse Doherty of The Post, who broke this story and and others, like they were not taking the bait on that and really not divulging much. And it did make me wonder, what are they not telling us here? Is there something more to this than we realized? I I was led to believe as well that we were talking three-year deals and that they were, you know, locked in sync there together. And, you know, in theory, it is a three-year deal if they pick up the options. But my second thought is the same as you. It just goes right to the ownership question because that hovers over everything with the organization right now and it makes all it almost makes all this stuff not worth stressing over too much because until we know what the ownership situation is how can we say we know how anything is going to play out so let me present some different scenarios here if the ownership thing was you know let's say they sold the team before the end of the year Do I think that's likely? Probably not. I feel like it would take longer than that, but what if they did? Well, now you've got brand new owners coming in and have to decide, are we retaining the current GM and manager for another year, or are we going to immediately go out and get somebody else? And my first thought is, unless it's somebody with a lot of experience who already has people they've worked with before, you're probably just going to retain your World Series winning GM and manager because it's only a one-year commitment. You take a year to evaluate everything, and then you decide what you're going to do after that. So that's my thought there. If the sale process, if there is a sale process drags out and it goes beyond this year, well, if you're the learners and you're going through that and you do expect that you're probably selling the team at some point in the relatively near future, are you going to go and make a major overhaul of your GM and managerial staff right now? Probably not because you're not going to be around long enough to then reap the benefits of whatever other move you make. So a lot can change, of course, but deep down, I sort of feel like the odds are very much in favor of both of them returning next year just because of the ownership situation. You take that out of it, then I think you could start saying, okay, do we think you know we want to continue this way? Are we really cleaning house and starting over again or not? But until you know who the owners are, I don't know how you can think that in those terms. And without knowing that, without having that set in place, I don't know why you would want to make a major change there unless you already have somebody in mind that, that you've worked with before. So I my hunch at this moment is that they're both probably safe for another year beyond this. But, you know, it's only May uh, 18th here. A lot can change. We don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, the more I think about the Nats ownership situation, the more that I say to myself, boy, this is not good. The uncertainty with the Nats right now is extreme enough with the team being in the state of this rebuild. To add ownership uncertainty to the baseball uncertainty, that's not good. That's a bad mix right now. And you just would like to have more clarity on where exactly you are from an ownership standpoint. And, you know, A, not knowing if the club is going to be entirely sold or not. And then B, not knowing when that might happen. I mean, we don't know. We have no idea. If the learners are going to sell the team, We don't know if it's going to happen this summer. We don't know if it's going to happen in the fall, in the winter, not till next year, not till 2024. Like nobody really knows because the news of them being open to selling the team only just broke, you know, a month or so ago. When they actually decided to sell the team, when they actually began the process of, you know, sending out feelers to all the richy riches of, hey, you know, we might be interested in selling this thing. We have no idea when that started. There's a lot about this situation that we don't know. And the other thing that I think about too is boy, it is amazing to me the difference in baseball with the contracts that executives and coaches slash managers get versus in other pro sports. I mean, here you have Mike Rizzo, right? He's been the Nats GM essentially since March 2009. He took them to eight consecutive winning seasons, five playoff appearances, four NL East titles, a World Series championship. And this guy's still working on a two year deal in terms of guaranteed money? Like, how wacko is that? Like, for comparison's sake, when the Wizards hired Scott Brooks as their head coach in the summer of 2016, do you know the terms of the contract he got? He got a five year, $35 million deal. Scott Brooks got paid $7 million per year. And he was the head coach. He wasn't like the head coach in GM. He was the head coach. It's not like he's a great head coach. He's okay, all right? But the results during his tenure weren't exactly spectacular. He got paid $7 million per year. You could add up Mike Rizzo's and Davey Martinez's salaries. You're not getting $7 million per year. You're not getting close to $7 million per year. And I just find that odd. There's so much money in baseball. And yet I feel like, especially general managers, are still so undervalued. Like, if you really believe in Mike Rizzo and you feel like, hey, we have one of the best GMs in baseball, and I think for the longest while you've been able to say that as a Nats fan, as a Nats owner, how come you're stringing this guy along the way that they have? And how come in baseball in general, for the most part, there are some GMs who get paid big, like Theo Epstein had like a rock star contract, right? Right. But man, that just seems like something that another team could totally exploit. You could argue your GM matters more than anybody in your organization. You pay someone like that, if you think he's great, whatever it takes, there's no cap, there's no luxury tax, there's no nothing like that. So it's very strange to me that this is how it is in baseball, and that Rizzo, even after winning a championship, only gets two years worth of guaranteed money from the Nets. That is bizarre.
4: So I think it's less of a issue with how baseball operates and more of how the learners have operated. Like you said, there are some, Theo Epstein, I think Andrew Friedman in LA, uh, Brian Cashman has you know, been a rock of stability with the Yankees for a long time. I think if you have an experienced GM who has had success and won things, most other organizations have locked them up to longer deals. I think there are others who had five-year deals, if I remember right. Now, the younger new generation of GMs uh, maybe not as much the you know fresh out of business school types, maybe not as much. You're seeing it there. Certainly, managers, as we've seen, are not valued the way that they were before, and they're not getting long-term contracts. But I think it's really more an indication of how the learners have operated for a long time. There were plenty of opportunities in the past that they could have given Mike Rizzo a much longer deal than he had. There were plenty of opportunities that could have given him even a manager a much longer deal. Remember, Davey is the first one who ever got a three-year guaranteed deal his first contract. So I think it's that more than anything. And what I would say with Rizzo, and I think this is a really interesting question. On one hand, you say, why on earth would you ever consider making a change there? Look at everything this guy has done for your organization more than anybody else to turn it into what it turned it into. On the other hand, the position that they're in right now and going from you know the end of 19 to now, who is most responsible for... The franchise going from a World Series champion to now, you know, at the moment being on pace to lose more than 100 games and having one of the worst farm systems in baseball. You would normally point the GM for that. So I think you could say that there are things that he has not done well the last few years that maybe make you say, is he the right guy to start this process all over again? It's an interesting dichotomy there. If he had more job security, we wouldn't even be talking about it. But the fact that he does, you know, in theory, have a contract that could expire at the end of this year, it is an opportunity to look at it and evaluate where you are with him. And what you have to decide is are those eight years of success a better measurement of things and tell you that he can get back to there again? Or is the struggles in the draft, the struggles to develop your own top prospects, is that fall on the GM at some point? And uh, do you look at the last few years and say, maybe we have to reconsider whether we think he's the right guy for the job right now?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of two different things. So yes, I think it is questionable whether Mike Rizzo should be the guy moving forward. And I think one of the reasons that Mike has been willing to play the reindeer games of the learners, especially lately, is he understands that he's kind of a dinosaur. He's an older guy. He's a guy with a scouting background. You know, he's not anti-analytics, but he's certainly not on the cutting edge of analytics. So I think if you're Rizzo, you're kind of like, well, if I became a free agent, is it a definite that I would get another general manager job? Maybe he would, but he goes against the trend of what is happening right now. Younger, Ivy League educated, you know, big time on analytics. But in September 2020, when Rizzo got this extension, we didn't know what was going to happen, which was that the Nats were about to fall off a cliff. Okay, yes, they had the bad 2020 season, but the season wasn't even over as of September 2020. So at the time, you still had this general euphoria of coming off the World Series and coming off, you know, the eight consecutive winning seasons. And that at that time, he could only command a two-year contract with a club option for 2023, I just think is stunning. And, you know, we don't know general managers' salaries. I still get the sense that most general managers aren't making the big money that you see other executives and other coaches and other sports make. And, and I, I just I find that odd in baseball. But, you know, I guess, it, you know, some of it maybe is just a feeling of, hey, if you don't want it, we can find someone else who can do this and, you know, maybe can be as good as you.
4: I don't know exact terms, but I do know that he is one of the highest paid GMs, not the highest. But at least at the time of the deal, I want to say he was in maybe the top five, you know, with like Theo at the top, Cashman at the top, Friedman at the top, uh, somewhere in that range. What he has not had over the years was the length of contract. And I think it's funny, Rizzo, I remember at one point, it might have been the previous extension that he signed, said that for him, the AAV average annual value was almost more important in his mind to be on par with the better GMs. Than the length of the deal maybe in hindsight the length of the deal would have meant more. but you know he's a guy who has always believed in himself and he will bet on himself forever, whether that means it's betting on himself to rebuild the Nationals organization or betting on himself to lead another organization somewhere to a, a championship caliber team. I don't know I just I keep coming back to there's so much uncertainty like we were saying, it seems like an odd time to now be discussing cleaning house and starting over. If that is where they potentially are going, unless a new owner was already in place within the next couple of months, like well before this season ends. How would you say that they have enough time to evaluate the situation to make a reasonable decision here? I don't see how you could say that. So it feels to me like this is not the time to be looking at changing a GM or a manager because of the ownership situation. If that never comes up, if the learners are just in charge and going to continue to be in charge, then I think it's a valid question to ask, what do we want to do moving forward? But with the ownership thing hovering over it all, it's, it's hard to see how that happens now.
0: Yeah. Things can change quickly. Uh, nobody saw this potential ownership change coming, what, six weeks ago, two months ago. So who's to say two months from now what we know, what ends up happening? And like I said, we don't know how far into this potential sale the learners might be. I think that's a wild card in all of this. Just because we just learned about the learners being open to selling doesn't mean that they have just started the process of trying to sell the team. So we shall see. Uh, you tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter, Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast. And also we continue to welcome your stories, your tales of that first Nationals National League East season, National League East winning season of 2012. You can send us a voice memo, just record yourself in your smartphone, send us the file again. The email address is Nats chat Podcast. At gmail.com, you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to site. That's site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with this voice memo from Eric in Arlington. His memories of that Nats 2012 season.
2: Al, Mark, Tim. The 2012 season was a breakthrough for the Nats, not just because it was the team's first postseason appearance, but because of the way it changed the narrative around the team. I say this for three reasons. Number one, the Strasburg shutdown. Remember that controversy? It was a daily conversation topic for much of 2012 and continued to hang over Strasburg and the team until his World Series MVP heroics in 2019. But at the time, this was really the first substantive controversy surrounding the club. Before that, most of the talk was about how bad the team was and how they couldn't even spell their name right on the front of their uniforms. Number two, the Worthquake. Jason Worth's walk-off homer in Game 4 of the NLDS became our Carlton Fisk moment. Our first iconic postseason moment to become fixed in our memories regardless of the fact that the Nats lost the game and the series the following evening. That's the thing about sports memories. A great moment can last forever and isn't necessarily erased by a subsequent failure. Number three, Teddy finally wins the president's race. Teddy Roosevelt won the president's race for the first time during the Nats' final regular season game of the year. And of course, you know how baseball is with its curses. Speculation about whether Teddy had cursed the Nats' postseason chances by disrupting his losing streak was almost immediate. And with subsequent NLDS losses in 2014, 16, and 17, talk of a Nats' postseason curse continued whether people wanted to blame it on Teddy or Drew Storen or bad managing or on something else. In this way, the Nats went from being like the Cubs, a team that historically was almost always bad, to becoming the baseball equivalent of the Capitals. A team good enough to make the postseason consistently, but one that was missing the special secret ingredient to get them past the first round of the postseason. And they really live up to the Capitals analogy. When the Caps finally broke through and won the Stanley Cup in 2018, baseball fans couldn't help but think, maybe our team will get its payoff soon too. And the next year, they did. Thanks for enhancing our enjoyment of the Nats season. To be honest, you've helped make it bearable. Those of us who watch the team and wonder, can they really be this bad? are grateful to hear your illuminating breakdown of what's going wrong and why each day. It makes me hope that Mike Rizzo and the learners are listening as closely to you as the rest of us are. Take care. 3-2, and a drive, hit deep to left field, looking
0: up, way back, it's gone!
3: We will have a Game 5 of this National League Division Series. Jason Wirth lines a home run into the bullpen.